And welcome back to another episode of the Boombasticast. Yes. Yes. And this is a special episode because Mr. Matthew Fisher and myself, Alexander Hawk, are Mr. actually Hawk. together in the same room. Okay, we we battled the uh, the coronavirus and we won. We won. Yes, yes, yeah, it, was it was a one one two knockout punch. Yeah, yeah, it was a one not one tour. It was a real one tour over there. I still feel that, like there's a split screen here. Yeah. Uh, it's weird to be back in the same room with Alexander Hawk for more reasons than one, of course. Uh, what can I say? You know what I mean? I'm a little grabby. But it's good to be back. What a painting. What a, what a, what a, this could have been a portrait. This could have been a nice painting. So, folks, you know, uh, we're going to you know, have a nice, cool topic for everybody out there on yeah. the Boombasticast today. Alexander Hawk, you want to fill in the audience out there what we're going to be diving into a little bit on oh. today's episode? Yeah, we're going to be diving into uh, talking about directors, uh, about movies that they have done, that they have uh, come out, and voice that they are not fans of. Even when a director puts his heart and soul in the project and you got producers, you got, you know... Other constraints that get in the way, and their vision isn't totally 100% seen. Yeah. Or the audience does not accept their vision the way that they intended it to. So they have a kind of a taste of sour grapes in their mouth when they think of that movie. No, it's true. You know, it's one of those things. It's very unfortunate. You know, in certain circumstances, you'll see a film that we would consider to be a masterpiece. You know what I mean? We think it's really great. And that filmmaker might not like it because, yeah, you know, he, it's it's a good film, but it might not have been exactly the what he wanted. He might have been trying to go a different place with it, um, you know, for, for whatever reason. Um, you know, it could even be a personal issue. It might not even be a thing with the film. Maybe he dealt with something tough during the making of that film or something, and that's why they don't like said film, you know. But I'd say mainly these dive into kind of creative reasons for why people don't jive with some of the films that they have made in circumstances where they say, I can choose who my least favorite is, even if they can't choose who their favorite is. Oh, yeah. Now, first up on the ballot here is a film that I knew had this issue for a long time, uh, and I never could quite figure out why, because I think the finished product of that film it's pretty, pretty, pretty damn well. Pretty, pretty, pretty good film. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a classic. It's it's one of the the best films ever made. I think it definitely falls in that category. Foo dang, those are big words. It is a great film. You know, it deals with a, a very touchy subject. I think it handled handled it pretty well. Um, that's just our yeah. opinion. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think a lot of uh, people, a lot of especially nowadays, when you're dealing with directors with studios and all that they don't want to touch subjects like these because especially i mean in in any kind of climate especially now when you're touching uh you know a very sensitive subject most people want to either forget about it or try to sanitize it try to you know have it forgotten it's like oh this is a terrible thing let's not talk about this but Terrible things we have to talk about. Otherwise, things will not change. The truth. That's truth. They yeah. say if you don't, really, if you don't look at your, your your past, you're forced to relive them. Yeah. You know what I mean. Yeah. Very true, deep statement. You know what I mean. For shizzle, for shizzle. A very important film. You know what I mean. 
Um, and that film being American History X. Okay. Yep. Yep. Throwing up the, the X. Uh, rest in peace, DMX. This is our first episode, I think, since DMX passed. Oh, yeah. Alex's eyeglasses are all foggy right now. Um, Tony Kay, director of American History X. Uh, there are a few directors who have gone so actively out of their way to discourage people from watching their film as Tony Kay. Unhappy with the way the studio, New Line, had a recut American History X, the filmmaker wrote multiple open letters published by the trade press telling people not to watch the final version. He even had the film pulled from Toronto Film Festival. I, he quotes, I had tried to get my name taken off of it and replaced with various uh, synonyms. Kay wrote in The Guardian three years after the release. One was Humpty Dumpty. Another was Ralph Coates, who played for uh, Toninum. In 1970s, the Directors Guild of America would not allow Kay to change his name, and he has bitterly lived with the accolade of directing the cult classic ever since. Craziness. Um, I like the fun. I like how Humpty Dumpty. That's funny. It's pretty crazy, you know. When you know, you'll see people often say, "Oh, yeah, well, I don't like this." This guy actually kind of put his money where his mouth was a little bit, where he had it pulled out of Toronto Film Festival. Yeah. Where I'm sure it would have went over big, you know yeah. what I mean. Um, I would love to, I would love to see his cut of it one day. I wonder if it exists. It probably doesn't even exist, uh, unless maybe he had something whipped together for him before studios kind of intersected. Yeah. But yeah, American History X. I remember the first time time I was like floored the first time I seen American History X. Uh, Giuseppe Andrews is also in that film for trauma people out there. He's a filmmaker in his own right, and he acted in a few films. I think Joel Reed did a, um, not Joel Reed, what's his name? The other Reed, he did the last movie star with Burt Reynolds. Oh, yeah. I'm losing my mind. He did The Chase as well. I'm losing my mind with me today, but that gentleman, last name Reed, I want to, not Joel we can't stay on this too long. I'm hoping respect pops into my world soon. <laughs> and he also did a segment of Chillarama. He did Wadzilla. Why am I? I, 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 it's very unfortunate. And I actually talked to him recently via the book about being on a podcast. So my, our luck, this will be the show he watches. and doesn't do any of the shows, <laughs> but um, yeah, Giuseppe Andrews is in it. I thought that was good. You had, um, the big dude from Boy Meets World in the Kevin Smith movies. I forget his name. He lost weight recently. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. His, his name. Yeah, yeah. He's always, I always had a, I was, I can, I can say, I, you know, I was never really a big fan of that dude. For whatever reason, I always got a weird vibe from him. I know people love him. Oh, and. He's on uh, Earl, too. Yeah. Yeah, also, uh, Eddie Furlong was in that. Eddie Furlong. Oh, boy, yeah. Oh, boy, yeah. Eddie, Eddie Furlong. Good old Eddie. The other Eddie was in that, too, of course. Eddie Norton bringing it home. The star. Some people would say the act, the actual star of the film, Eddie Norton. Oh, yeah. And um, is Ernie Hudson? Who's the principal? Oh, shit. Is that not Ernie Hudson? That might... That that was... Ernie Hudson could have played that part, but he yeah. might not have. He might not have played that one. I gave it to him, too. I... I, I, I he, he nailed the audition. Um... <laughs> Yeah, anyway, so yeah, the American History X, do you remember the first time you watched that? Uh, I don't remember the first time I watched it. 
I know that uh, when I watched it, it's. I think one of the best things about the film, which is a thing that I think a lot of people don't try to steer away from, especially nowadays, mm-hmm. it's one of those films that is extremely uncomfortable to watch. Right. And that is is why one of the reasons why it's so good, because yeah. it doesn't try to sugarcoat it. It doesn't try to, you know, sanitize the situation. It just freaking you know steps out there, and 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 uh, and gives you a good old sucker punch to the gut while you watch it. And it doesn't have a happy ending. It. Uh, but it is a story that I think needs to be told, and it's a story that, you know, was really well done. I mean, I can only imagine, I and mean, I would have loved to see the director's cut of this, and if, if I did, you know, probably I could see exactly why the director wanted to distance himself from this film. Yeah, I'd really like to see what his take on yeah. it was, you know what I mean? Because of everybody, everybody who's seen the cut of it knows what it is. It's, it's about a, you know, a family that's kind of bred, born and bred racist, and you know, the brother is like hardcore into it, and kind of the younger brother becomes, you know, involved in all that stuff through him, big brother type stuff, and then the big brother goes away and re- realizes that he is all bullshit. You know what I mean? And when he comes out, he tries to like get his brother to get out of it, and. Um, I won't spoil the ending. It's a great movie for so anybody's never seen it. But it's like one of those deals. Uh, in the way that it's executed, it's very poignant, very, yeah. very like it's it's very tragic. It's very raw. The whole it is very raw. It's very it's almost a dangerous movie. You know, to almost put in that as corny of a category that is often saying you get like Last House on the Left and I think Clockwork Orange are films that are kind of dangerous movies where if the wrong person was to watch it too many times. It could probably it would have a, a negative effect on them, and I don't say that that happens a lot with films, but I do think every now and then, you know, films do kind of get so just so real, yeah, that it can really affect people. But, and that's the, 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 that's the overall you're aiming to affect. But he's aiming to affect people with yeah. it. You know what I mean? Well, I mean the thing is that I think like a film like uh, American History X, yeah, okay. Um, dealing with the subject matter, dealing with with everything that I dealt with, and because it's uncomfortable, was because it's very raw, is is the beauty of the film. Yeah, and that is why. I mean, a lot of people like to say, "Oh, people watch you know these these uh, you know violent movies, violent video games, and this is why we have violent violence in our schools, and why." You know, there's there's so much uh, uh, issues now. But honestly, my opinion when it comes to, like, I think you're doing more harm showing someone, like, the Avengers movie. Yeah. Okay? Over than showing someone uh, American History X. And the reason I say that, I mean, I love the Avengers movies. They're great. They're a lot of fun. I definitely do enjoy watching them. But... You know, they give you the feeling like, oh, there'll be people out to help you. There's, you know, good will always triumph. And anyone who's lived in the real world knows that is not the case. And 
And the thing with American History X is it shows the rawness of the reality that some people are in. Like Matt said, this is a family that is born into it, bred into this kind of thing. and Born into this. And it is possible for people to break to break out of it, yeah. but it, it, it takes a lot. And when that person breaks out, of course, the first thing they want to do is they want to reach out to those that they love and try to teach them what they have taught. But unfortunately, a lot of times he can't do that because you have to go through what you've gone through to actually, you know, especially, you know, kind of make that change. People don't change unless they want to change and they have to be put in a situation. I mean, you could want someone to change so badly and do everything you can, uh, but that's not going to happen, especially, I mean, in this case, he feels extremely responsible because his brother's in this because of him, and he wants to get his brother out. But after all these years of, you know, getting him in, it's a lot easier to get someone into this kind of situation than getting them out. And Hawk knows by personal experience, right? What can I say, man? We had to pull him out of the shit many a times in the middle of the mornings when everybody was passed out, <laughs> drunk, and drugged out. We had to go in there with the fucking small army of people and fucking pull him out. He had the fireman carry me out. The original Stacy Keach I found and beheaded. The character that was that was based off of. I found him sleeping in a bed with Alex Hawk. And uh, Alex was not enjoying himself. If he was enjoying himself, I would have let it work. would have let it work itself out. Um, the next film up on the slab yeah. is Alexander. Do you want to you wanna call it out? Sure. All right. We'll let you do it big. Okay. Transformers Revenge of the Fallen Michael Bay. Oh, bye. The first Transformers was a decent enough popcorn flick. Critics uh, may not have been enamored by the CGI blockbuster, but there's no denying watching robots beating each other up is mindless entertainment of the highest order. Yet Michael Bay managed to make a mess of that simple winning formula in the sequel, Revenge of the Fallen, something he later admitted when I look back at it. That was crap, he said of the film in 2011. The writer's strike was coming hard and fast, it was just terrible to do a movie where you've got to have a story in three weeks. I was prepping a movie for months where I only had 14 pages of some idea of what the movie was. It's a BS way to make a movie. And I do have to agree with Michael Bay. It is a BS way I, to make a movie. I do have to agree, too, unfortunately. You know, that's one thing, the one thing that, you know, being lower-budgeted filmmakers, we don't really have to deal with is, like, the writers' unions and stuff like that, those specialty unions, every now and then some SAG stuff. But we don't have to go deep into, like, everybody where everybody's a union for the most part. And then you really got to play ball, because then I feel his pain with, the, with that, where nothing can get done, because... You can't even open a file of a script without breaking up probably a law in some writer's union. You know what I mean? You probably can't even open up the old PDF. It's like opening up a PDF is like crossing the picket line probably. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I almost feel his vibe on that. But, you know, it, you know, to play in the big leagues like that, you got to play by the big league rules. That's just kind of how it goes. I was never really a big fan of the Transformer films. I was more of a cartoon fan. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I I saw it's it's funny because Transformers, the first one that came out, yeah, 
I, I, like everyone else, was blown away uh, by the, you know, by the uh, CGI, the special effects, yeah. you know, bringing, you know, a cartoon that I grew up watching into more of a real-world setting I thought was great. And then, uh, then they did Revenge of the Fallen, and I just, I just remember watching it, and it was it, for me. It just felt like, you know, they were trying to, you know, put something together that just didn't work. I mean, the jokes weren't funny. Uh, they had, you know. Useless stereotypical characters, and uh, it just, yeah. I mean, well, the first one was exciting, and I think the first one, you know, usually always when you have a first one, it's going to be a bit exciting, especially if they're taking something that was in one format, in this case, animation, yeah, and making it into a live action, even when you're doing um, a film like Scooby Doo. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not saying Scooby-Doo, the live-action movie, was perfect or great, but you kind of have that kind of excitement yeah. because you're like, grew up watching this, I want to see this in kind of more of real-world setting, kind of make you feel like this could actually happen. Um, and and that's... And, I mean, I, I watch Transformers now, and it's a fun popcorn flick, but it it's not as... Especially since I've seen so many more of the same type of stuff since. It's not, you know, it doesn't stand the test of time for me. But Revenge of the Fallen just felt like a mess. And it does feel like, you know, he had 14 uh, pages of a script, didn't really know where he was going, and he just tried to wing it. I mean, sometimes they're able to do that. I mean, perfect example is like Iron Man. Okay. Yeah. They made a big thing how there wasn't even a finished script when they started filming with Robert Downey Jr. and um, uh, Jeff Bridges. He played Obadiah Stane, right? Um. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I don't, I don't follow the comic book films as much as you'd like. <laughs> well, anyway, I mean, there was an interview with him where you know he said that you know he got involved with this. And, you know, he didn't even have a full script when they started filming. I believe that. And, I, I think I've heard that, actually. Yeah. yeah. And, and he made a comment that, at first, he was really kind of, you know, uptight, upset about this. Because this isn't how a big blockbuster film works. Yeah. But after working with Robert and, 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 and going through, he, he started looking at this. This is kind of sort of like a student film, a well-funded student film, but like a student film. And when he put that mindset in it, he was able to, you know, do his job and end up being a great film. Ended up working for him. I mean, everybody has different ways of doing yeah. things, you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Revenge of the Fallen, it was it was a cluster. It, it just... Now, was that the one, the last one that Shia LaBeouf was a part of? Because I remember at one point he came, he he like got kicked no. out of the movie for talking Shiatola Booth about it. No, no, no. There was there was one other movie after with Shia LaBeouf, but with, it was the last one with Megan Fox. She only signed on for uh, was it the third one or the second? Was no, the, the second one was when Megan Fox was let go. The third one, Shia LaBeouf came horrifying. back, but they threw in I forget the actress's name. I think she was a model or something. Meg, uh, Megan Fox was in this one. Yes, yeah, she was okay. in this one, 
But there's a third one that Shia LaBeouf came back for, okay. and Megan Fox did not. I think, I think uh, this was a time where she made a comment about, you know, uh, Michael Bay was like Hitler or something like that. And they all end up being like Hitler right here. One another gentleman that we're gonna get to in a little later in this list was recently called Hitler. Uh-oh. Yeah, but yeah, it was funny. I didn't know if this was the same one that LaBeouf got in trouble for talking shit about. Cause I remember he got in trouble yeah. for talking shit about one of them, and like that was the end of him being a part of the franchise. Yeah, I think that was the third one. And that, that was I the think, one after. This. I think that put a hurting on his career. I almost say that kind of fucked things up with him and Spielberg too, because uh, he did that Indiana Jones flick. He probably. LaBeouf was setting himself up to be like the next big thing. He came up in the childhood stardom and people were popping with his teenager and and young adult, like with the Transformers shit. People were loving him. He did that Jinnia Jones movie. I think, I think success got to his, not to his head in like a way of like, well, yeah, some ego, but I think it blew, fuck it. It was too much, too quick, even though he, he, he slowly progressed, but. I don't know. He, you, 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 I don't know. I guess it's like you have all that pressure. It depends on how you deal with it. And if you deal with it with uh, droogs and hackamahow, then uh, it's a problem. But yeah. it could be a problem any way you deal with it. You know what I mean? And who's to say? Maybe they call him the snowman for cocaine. No, because the <laughs> next film we're going to bring up is the snowman. All right. By our pal, Thomas Alfredson. All right. The Swedish director, uh, he received an acclaim for the Oscar nominated Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. His follow up film, the mystery thriller, The Snowman, was ripped apart by critics. Our sh- they say our shoot time in Norway was way too short. Um, yeah, he explained that at the film's release. We didn't get the whole story with us when we started cutting. We discovered that a lot was missing. Uh, he added, despite the snowman being in development for years with Martin Scorsese once attached as director around 10 to 15% of the script was not filmed. It's like when you're making a jigsaw puzzle and few pieces are missing. So you don't see the whole picture. He added, well, that, well, that was somebody's fault. Not, uh, whoever, I don't know. I don't know. He's explaining that too, but when you make a gigantic and I understand things happen, but you like to think when that much money is being spent, you wouldn't run into the same issues you'd run into on like a 50 cent project. And I don't mean the rapper. I mean the fucking <laughs> the budget. So, yeah, I don't know. I always when I you know, it's weird. Um, whenever somebody, you know, when you, whenever you see a filmmaker who's making like a hundred million dollar film, you'd say, I get you. Wouldn't they have their thing squared away, but more money, more problems as notorious B.I.G. says, so I guess, uh, and when I've worked on any big Hollywood sets, I only really worked on one big Hollywood set in all my days. And the only thing that was different was the equipment, um, bigger cameras and bigger cranes and more technical shit, you know what I mean? But the wait time and everybody kind of just walking around aimlessly um, for the most part, you know what I mean? It was all the equal amount you'd catch on a regular set, you know, or a low budget set. It was really just the cameras that was the only difference. The cameras and the cameras and, uh, you know, the the food table for the celebs is a little bigger than what you get for the local celebs. Yeah. But other than that, you know, I didn't get to see any trailers. I'm sure those I heard stories of trailers being ridiculous, but yeah. uh, that, you know, unfortunately, that's where a lot of that, you know, millions go into the garbage shit. That you don't got to worry about like somebody needing a fucking 
gym in their trailer so they can stay. They don't they don't pull a fucking hammy when they're out there doing um, their terrible yeah. teacher turned ultimate fighter at night moonlighting as a actor, you know, comedian moonlighting so, as an so, actor or something like, like that. Sounds like some. Uh, it sounds like here comes the boom, boom, boombastic films. Here comes boombastic films with the boombastic cast. Uh, here comes the Boombastic cast is back with it. And uh, we're always reigning supreme. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, yeah, the fact that this film lost Scorsese, that's when they kind of jumped the shark, in my opinion. I feel like that's a that's hard enough one to kind of come back from. Uh, I bet a lot, of it, a lot of the investments fell out when Marty walked away from the project yeah, as well. Yeah, I mean, honestly, what it sounds like probably is because Marty uh, stepped away uh, that, you know, probably the money wasn't there. And, and you know, just – and when the money is not there or it, just the producers don't have either the faith or, or the um, – Willingness to you know take a chance. Well, we see it even in the in the in the, in the smaller, lower budget films. You'll see that it, when people sometimes they'll get half the budget and then they'll just tr- start shooting the movie and they never get those other funds to finish it. Yeah. So you can tell that the film has an unfinished look to it or just doesn't ever get finished. Um, and that could be the problem right here. Whereas in at one point, Marty was attached, and people were like, fuck, I'd love to be a part of that. And they put money in, and maybe when Marty fell out, they said, well, we got this dude to direct, and certain people weren't interested anymore with the new dude, pulled their money, and they said, you know what? This guy just did this. We're doing the follow-up. We got three-quarters of the money. We got the ball rolling. We'll continue to look for funds while we're shooting. And by the grace of Satanus, since we're talking about Hollywood then we'll have somebody come in in the ninth inning and give us, you know, big bills to finish up what we need. And I don't think that ever came. So then it didn't quite cap it off. Some poor sucker out there probably, like, gave a bunch of money that he knew was going into the fucking toilet just to get it done. And then, you know, then then the director can complain. Just Just get it to the point where we can get it finished so the director can complain about it so we can try not to let it hurt his future career <laughs> just wave uh, wave all your investment money bye bye what do we got next all right next is avengers age of ultron Woo! mr josh whedon uh, josh whedon uh changed uh, cinema uh with the avengers the ensemble film uh brought a host of uh, uh different uh superiors together and in the process, made over $1.5 billion at the box office. Balancing all those characters was tough, and come the sequel, Age of Ultron, the director was worn down. Whedon apparently uh, couldn't muster the ability to watch the entire film after completion, saying, I'm tired and I had a terrible time. A year later, in 2016, the filmmaker clarified his comments. I was so being down by the process. Some of that was conflict, uh, conflicting with Marvel, which is inevitable. A lot of it was about my own work, and I was also exhausted. Whedon added that uh, he remains proud of the film, yet there are still things about the film that frustrated him hugely. Hmm. Now, here's the thing. this A lot of people give Age of Ultron crap, yeah. okay? I actually liked the film. I thought it was a good follow-up. Um, is it perfect? Are there things that could be changed and uh, would have been nice uh, 
If it was done uh, slightly differently, of course. That's the case with any project. But uh, I was, I mean, personally, I was, I mean, I'm not 100% surprised because when he did Avengers and it was so successful, I mean, they were building up to the Avengers movie. And the thing was that I'm sure when they got to that point, they were like, okay, we are, this is what we have built towards. Yeah. And we need a specific director to be able to pull off all these big, bigger-than-life characters and have them, you know, have good screen uh, chemistry and screen time together. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that's, I mean, you watch, like, other whether it's superhero movies or any other movies, when you have a huge ensemble cast. Yeah. And especially when you have big-name actors in that cast. A lot of times, you know, you know, they end up focusing on, like, three three of the main, and then everyone else might get a few lines here, maybe a little bit of a backstory. But a lot of times, it only focuses, like, on the top three, and everyone else kind of loses out. Yeah. Now, Josh did a beautiful job in Avengers uh, giving every character a reason to be there and a personality and let them flourish as their characters. Now, with Age of Ultron, he also did that. But I think uh, because Age of Ultron kind of had a lot of expectations. Yeah. For the simple fact. I mean, when he did Avengers, it was... It blew, blew everyone out of the water. And when that happened, everyone's like, okay, so this is going to be even better than Avengers. And the thing is that as he keeps on saying he was tired, he was worn down, I can believe that. I can believe that, you know, after Avengers, get, even though there were, you know, um, uh, a few years in between the two movies, there's still, especially when you're doing like a big... Um, uh, a, a big movie, you got a, uh, there's a lot of uh, pre-production you have to do, yeah. and I'm sure that after he was done Avengers, he was like thrown directly into pre-pro. I would assume, yeah. and uh, and that's probably because he probably didn't have a lot of a break between Avengers and Age of Ultron, and and because of that, and especially since being a director, 90% of everything's going to be put on you and probably weighed him down. And, and of course, like you said, he had conflicts with Marvel. I know that there's a lot of things that he wanted or tried to do in Age of Ultron that people, you know, either didn't like or thought was haphazard. They thought the, uh, the pseudo-romance uh, between Bruce Banner and Black Widow was kind of forced. Yeah. Um, and they thought a lot of other things just didn't work. Uh, me, personally, and this is one of the things I have to say when it comes to uh, Joss Whedon leaving after Age of Ultron, because then the Russo brothers came in and then they kind of took over the reins. Well, I like the Russo brothers and all that, with I, I so wish that Joss Whedon stayed with with the Avengers franchise till the uh, uh, last film in this first like wave, which was Endgame, yeah. for a very selfish reason, and, and that is that I wanted to see how he was going to evolve Bruce Banner and the Hulk because 
when you watch Age of Ultron, there's a scene in it where um, uh, Scarlet Witch makes a comment to Bruce Banner about, you know, making him hulk out and lose control. And he, he looks at her dead in the face and says, I could choke the life out of you and not change a single shade of green. That was beautiful. That that shows, you know, there was so much more to do with that character. And then, you know, Russo's came in and then Hulk became kind of like, eh, who cares? Yeah. They then like, oh, we don't know what to do with Hulk. So this uh, this habit that he doesn't, he can't. Uh, Mark Ruffles' character Bruce Banner can't, you know, summon him. So we'll just have Mark do Bruce Banner stuff, kind of funny stuff, or like, you know, with uh, you know the uh, the uh, Thor three Ragnarok movie. They you know just made him a joke yeah. and hardly use him in Endgame. And yeah, like I said. I would have liked it. It it was obvious that he definitely was, you know, under the gun. Everyone was putting a lot of pressure on him, and and probably because of what he wanted to do and what he was able to do, it just didn't quite, you know, mesh up. Under the gun, no, no, uh, under the James gun. <laughs> under the gun, Mister James Gun. Oh my, oh my, Lord, 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 how they did begin. You know what I mean. But uh, yeah, you know, and even when you're not working on something like that, I only assume that knowing the responsibility, there's really no downtime. Even when you're home eating dinner, I'm sure you're taking notes or thinking. I assume the good ones would, the yeah. ones who appreciate the fact they're in that big seat. So uh, next up, we have uh, Annie Hall, Hannah and her sisters, Manhattan by a guy named Woody Allen. Oh my! Oh, oh my! Um. There you go. You got it. Now, you know, Annie Hall is widely regarded as one of the greatest movies of all time. Hannah and her sisters won an Oscar for Best Screenplay. Manhattan is awful heralded as a comedic masterpiece. But Woody Allen likes to, you know, uh, he often believes his other films are better. For some reason, Annie Hall is very likable, in his opinion. Uh, But he's made better films than that. Uh, Match Point is a better film, in his opinion. Purple Rose of Chiaro is a better film. The French one, Midnight in Paris, all better films. Vicky Cristina Barcelona is a, is as good. I mean, I've made films that were as good, but for some reason, that's got some charismatic, inexplicable hold on people. That in Manhattan, too. I missed what I was going for with Manhattan. Something with Hannah and her sisters. I'm not saying it's a terrible film or a bad. I'm not here to knock my films. I'm here to knock my daughter-in-law. But for me personally, I missed it. It was too triacly at the end. Too bailed out. He's rarely dissected it. For a dude who don't like it, he really did dissect it a bit. Um, yeah, I honestly have never really sat down and watched a Woody Allen film. Um, you know, his kind of reputation, you know, back in the day, back in like his day, you know, he was like a great auteur that everybody respected. Um, that Midnight in Paris movie that he made recently, I remember people saying was actually really good. I've never seen it. But like I've said, I've never actually seen a Woody Allen film. And that's nothing against Woody Allen or his films. 
I just never kind of caught myself wanting to watch one. And one day I will. And one day I might say that they're very underrated. I might say they're overrated, but I won't have a full opinion until I watch them. Um, have you seen any of his films, any of these ones? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I've seen maybe uh, a couple of yeah. his films, and uh, none of them are the ones listed. I um, I know that they hold people hold gigantic respect for them. Well, I, actually, it's kind of funny because, you know, if you sit down and dissect what he said there, it's... Uh, He's not saying that they're bad films, but he thinks that other films he's done are better than the ones that a lot of people give him praise for. Yeah, I, I take him as a dude that would never say he made a bad movie. Yeah, I take him from one of those gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think the big thing is that um, you never know what the audience is going to hundred percent connect to, and I think the fact is that. When you do a film that you feel like, oh, I really, like, I, I took out all the stops, uh, this is great, I put a lot of work into it, this is, you know, a great film, this is one of my best. And then the audience is like, eh, well, you, it's not as good as, as this film. And then pointing at Andy Hall, and he's kind of like, you know, Andy Hall, he didn't think that he was as good that he you know, reached, you know, his epitome of being a director with that film. And and I find that's the case a lot of times where you have audiences kind of gravitate towards a film a director did that might not be, I mean, if you sit down and dissect it, as good as some of his other films, but it just connects with the audience in an emotional way. Mm-hmm. And those three films, I believe, was more on the emotional, more on the, like, cult status that people, you know, really gravitated towards those stories, towards that film, how how he put it together. So he can, you know, say, you know, oh, I did this film, this film is so much better, but it did not get the love of Annie Hall. I I worked hard on this other film. I, I did things that I, I didn't do in the other that makes this a great film, but people still love Annie Hall more. And that's that's the way I, I read it, is that, you know, as a director, I think it's the most important is always try, always become better, always work hard on your craft and try and make every film you do better. And, and, and you sit back, you'll look like, I put a lot of work in this. I think this should get as much praise, if not more, than, you know, my earlier work. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, you can 100% uh, figure out all the time what's going to really connect with the audience. I mean, just the fact of when it w- when it was released, and just the zeitgeist of the entire you know human condition at the time. That could simply be the reason why you know reason why why uh, people will always watch those movies over some of his more recent films, which he thinks are a lot better films. Yeah. What do you think? No, I agree with you. I think you're 100% right there. You're right on the cusp of reality to what the truth could be. You know what I mean? I'm with you. Yeah, he won't bash his own films. I, I, I do need to see him. I can't really give an overall opinion, but I do know that people do love the films of... Uh, Woody Allen. So he must be doing something right or he hit 
the zeitgeist at just the right time, whatever it may be. You know what I mean? But it is what it is. But our next gentleman up. Okay, our next gentleman up is Highball Noah Bambach. 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 He also did that marriage story that was nominated a couple years back. Oh, yeah. Noah Bombach yeah. is now a beloved indie filmmaker thanks to The Squid and the Whale, That's what tell you. Francis Ha, and uh, Mayowitz stories. Yeah. Yet he was not always a claimed director. Bombach despised his second film, Highball, so much that his directing credit was changed to Ernie Fusco and his writers won to Jesse Carter. It was just too ambitious, he said to the, uh, of the film which concerns a newly married couple who ended up inviting too many people to their Brooklyn flat for a party. We didn't have enough time. We didn't finish it. It didn't look good. It was just a whole uh, mess. I believe him. We uh, couldn't get it done, and I had a falling out with the producer. He abandoned it, and I had no money to finish it. To uh, go back and maybe get two more days or something, then later it was put out on DVD without my approval. You know, no, I've seen no in some interviews, and he seems like he could be a little difficult for a producer, a little bit problematic. I can only speak as a producer um, and a filmmaker, both sides, so I can understand. But, yeah, I don't know, man. It's one of those things, whenever you say that it's, uh, what do you say, it was too... Um, too um, ambitious. Ambitious, yeah. yeah. Too amb- you know, I'm sure you had a reasonable budget for it, I'm sure the budget reached the ambition, especially when it's inside of a fucking apartment. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I kind of hope that you can figure something out like that. That's, you know, the ambition of that is camera work and being able to tell the story. It's one of his earlier films. Maybe he couldn't do that stuff yet. And sometimes you get unhappy with the producer when you realize you can't do those things. And maybe that's his little problem right there. Uh, no, I don't know. Yeah, Noah came out of nowhere and has been getting uh, high accolades since the day he dropped. He, he seems like one of those one of those filmmakers that were made in a test tube a little bit. You know what I mean? <laughs> that yeah. they came out they came out of the test tube with a with a blank check and fucking uh, microphone. <laughs> yeah. But he's also married to somebody else who's big poppin' in the film world. They were both nom the year that marriage the marriage story story was nominated. His wife was also nominated for I think also best director or best film. Um, I forget what she did. She was she came from the acting world. He might even have too. I don't know. I think he's always been. I think he did that kicking and screaming movie as well. That was kind of his first pop was on the Will scene. Will Ferrell. It might. I don't. It may be. I think it's called kicking and screaming. Criterion actually put out a release to a release of it, which is horrifying. Mm. But that's kind of what happens. Um, but I've never seen this film. He's a beloved indie filmmaker, I guess. Um, the Squid and the Wheel, I do know, and Francis Ha, I did hear get actual praise before. Yeah. So I got to give the gentleman respect for that. And even if, you know, you get the upper hand, even if you do, even if you kind of are born into a situation where, you, you know, with money and budgets, doesn't exactly mean you're going to get to the top. So talent is required. And I've never met the man. He could be a great dude. So I should, you know, it is what it is. Noah, Noah and the wife hit me up. Let's all do dinner. <laughs> Let's do dinner with the Boombastic cast. And we'll mash out an idea for next year's Academy Award winner. 
Well, I mean, it's it's funny. I mean, this was supposedly his uh, second uh, feature film, and uh, he said it was too ambitious. I mean, I haven't seen the movie, so I can't one hundred percent say. Um, but I mean, thing is, if this was his second film, and uh, and especially if uh, you know he was trying to definitely you know market himself, get himself you know more out there, maybe he tried to you know push the envelope in uh, in storytelling or or uh, what he was trying to do, and he just as as Matt said wasn't quite up there yet. I mean. As as we said before, being a filmmaker, being a director is the same as a lot of other things. Where you know you start out, you know, you know, doing something, and it might be okay, but it's not going to be you know great or good. And then you know you hopefully progress as you keep on going. And maybe the this uh, highball was one of those things where uh, he did a first movie, he got you know some. You know, some praise people are, you know, starting to take notice. And he was like, okay, I'm going to up the game. And then he tried to do a film that was a little bit out of what he could really do with either the budget Mm. or the people he could have or, you know, other things. I mean, without actually being there on set, I can't really say. Yeah, I do think that certain in that in that level of you know the filmmaking, you know, almost not Hollywood, indie indie Hollywood, whatever that means, level of filmmaking, the terms too ambitious and not having enough time is like code word for you know funds running out or not having the full budget. There's a lot of run and gun we see on on. I think there's a, I've seen run and gun on everything from super duper low budgets to even it looks like this where this wasn't a super duper high budget, but I I bet high ball. Had more than a million dollar budget. Yeah. You know what I mean? Probably even more than two or three million. Um, so with that being said, I mean, I don't know. So I, I, I don't know. And, you know, let's, we're going to have to move on because we're going to probably start to get hard on Noah pretty soon. <laughs> I don't want to get too hard on Noah and I don't know him. Um, next up, um, I think I'm next up. So yeah. uh, Babylon AD, Matthew, Matthew, or a fancy way of saying Matthew. Kasovitz. Um, before Babylon AD, a futuristic sci-fi flick about a mercenary who is in, uh, has to escort a woman from Russia to America, reached cinemas in the UK. The director, Matthew, Matthew Kasovitz, was trying to distance himself from the Vin Diesel-led project. The movie is supposed to teach us that the education of our children will mean the future of our planet. He said all the action scenes had a goal. They were supposed to be driven by either a metaphysical point of view or experience for the characters. Instead, parts of the movie are like a bad episode of 24. Uh, Kasovitz later added, the film was pure violence and stupidity. Now, I can see where this dude's coming from because uh, he's trying to make like almost a conscious movie here. He's trying to make a movie teaching America that, you know there's an issue kind of that needs to be addressed and studios, you know, you know, a studio, people that make violent movies that sell violent movies to kids aren't going to be cool with you trying to make a movie talking about how that's not a good thing. So yeah, they let you go do your deal. Then they take your movie and they cut it to push their agenda. Again, when you want to play in that big league, there's rules you have to follow. And that one of those rules is that 
whoever puts up the money is the dude at the getting final call at the end of the yeah. end of the day. So like if this dude was trying to make this this opus about how, you know, what was it about his uh education, uh the education of our children is the future of our planet. I mean, that is reality. But you also you look at, you know, music and some of the films on TV being pushed at the kids and you go is really kind of dumbing them down a little bit. Um, and then you kind of got to wonder why films like this get kind of, you know, shushed up or the messages in these films get recut to be a different thing. So it's not too real. Uh, Hollywood definitely does not like to get too real. Too real offends people and offending people cry and, and sue. So they don't want to get, you know, you almost it's a weird catch 22 where, you know, you don't blame them for not being too real sometimes, even though there's a way they're, they're the professionals. They should be able to figure out the appropriate way of being real without having to fucking, you know, cower down. But um, Babylon AD, you know, did you catch that one? Um, I have not seen the movie. I did see the trailer when it came out. So, I mean, I can, I I know when I saw the trailer, I wasn't too interested in it because, I mean, as he said, it came across as another dumb action film. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, other than Vin Diesel being the lead, I don't remember much more than that. But, I mean, the thing was is... Was Babylon AD supposed to be the sequel to Pitch Dark? No. What was the sequel to Pitch Dark? There was uh, a, there Yeah, was yeah, yeah. Uh, the sequel was... An unofficial... Uh, yeah, yeah uh, it was uh, Chronicles of Riddick. Okay, all right. That's, yeah, yeah, Because yeah. I, I very vaguely remember Babylon AD. Yeah, that came out about... The same time, I think. Babylon. But, yeah. I mean, uh, the thing is that the impression I get was he had a message he wanted to get through. And, of course, he, uh, like a lot of uh, people, realized that no one wants to be uh, preached to. Everyone hates that. So, mm-hmm. you know, he has the action uh, elements pretty much as the sugar to help the medicine go down. Right. All right. And then, of course, you know, he has this underlying, you know, you know, important message he's trying to push and all of that. And then, of course, the American uh, producers look at it like, we don't care about the message. We just want a Vin Diesel action flick. People can go in and just drool as they watch, you know, and uh, that's what it sounds like uh, what happened. And unfortunately, I mean, that's I mean. I mean, you have I mean, the only one I can think of that really is kind of successful in kind of doing this would be Lloyd Kaufman, because yeah. I mean, a lot of people can you know just post off like Lloyd stuff saying oh it's it's you know it's over the top uh, nudity over the top you know gross fest but he yeah. ev- every everything he does is a commentary on on society or a commentary on the opioid addiction or something like that. And, you know, the nudity and, and the um, gore stuff is, like I said, the sugar that helps the medicine go down. It's like you come in for that, but he's also making a good point. And that's another right. reason why, you know, you know, he doesn't get the respect I think he deserves is that, you know, our society wants everyone to be dumbed down and not see what's going on behind the curtain. And this film sounds like it was, unfortunately, a uh, 
a casualty of that situation. No, I agree with you on that. I stand with you. A legendary man is about to be spoke about. Yes. Yes. Catch Fire by Dennis Hopper. Woo! In 1992, Dennis Hopper joined the ranks of directors who released uh, their film under the pseudonym Alan Smithy, famously used when filmmakers disown their own film. Originally called Catch Fire, the Jodie Foster starring thriller about a woman who enters witness protection was later retitled Backtrack, and 20 minutes were cut from the straight-to-VHS release. Uh, Hopper rarely spoke about the, the film. He wanted to distance himself as much as possible from the doomed projects. Dennis Hopper, uh, king, true legend of his time. Um, mainly probably known for his acting stuff, mainly, you know. <coughs> but he did do, uh, he did direct a few films. My, my, you know, Easy Rider, classic. Um, he also directed another f- classic film, maybe the greatest cop movie ever made called Colors. Um, that movie was made maybe 30 years ago, and it is, uh, a beautiful film that plays would probably make people cry watching today with, you know, just the, the stand, you know, the, the way with the world we're living in now, it kind of all works today as much as it did back then. It's very cool. Um, yeah, but he's a dude that would often go to war for his, you know, I know that the, um, easy rider had a whole bunch of battles with the, with that, uh, and him. And he was one of those really artistic, uh, tour directors that, you know, would just go out there and take the money and just come back with the film, you know what I mean? Um, you know, Mr. Hoppe liked that he indulged. He indulged in drugs and alcohol, <laughs> and he opened his mind, you know what I mean? I think that made him more of an interesting person. Um, much like Josh Whedon, he's a friend of a friend of the Boombastic cast, which is nice. Uh, rest in peace, yeah. Dennis Hopper. Uh, he's one of those actors that there, there will never be another Dennis Hopper. You know, there's certain actors that, you know, actors pass every day. And there's certain ones, you know, that you could, like, for living, you got Nick Cage. There'll never be another Nick Cage, you know what I yeah. mean? He's just the way it is. You know, Robert Mitchum, you know I mean? There'll never be another Robert Mitchum. You know, you can go back and John Wayne. There'll never be another John Wayne, you know what I mean? You can pick out, you know, any of these grades. Um, but, yeah, Hopper is one of them. He's And he's from that, that 70s. You know, he's probably one. When you think of the people that rose up by the '70s, he's like one of them, one of the kings. I feel like true. You know, and the Easy Rider is such an indie film. You know, such the heart and soul of indie filmmaking. They just took the money, they went out there on the road, and they fucking came back with a movie. And it's like a great film. Yeah. It's one of those movies I didn't see till later in life, and I said, you know, this movie must be fucking overrated. I'm one of those dudes that gives everything hard times. And until I see it, I just assume it's overrated if people are <laughs> loving it. And then when I get it, when I get into it, uh, I really, I deeply enjoy it, you know, and that, that, that film's like that. And Colors, oh, magnificent. I would love to see his cut of whatever this film is. And even the cut that he's not happy with, to tell you the truth. Because, um, yeah, fucking... He, he can make a good film. He can definitely make a good film. And it's more, you know, it's deep. Dude, the Colors is deep as fuck. If, I, if you were to watch any movie, I'd say go watch Colors. It's got our boy Courtney Gaines in it. Yeah. Uh, hell yeah. Sean Penn, Robert Duvall, fucking phenomenal. 
phenomenal film. Any VHS heads out there, you can get one that actually comes in a red VHS. I have it. Woo! But yeah, so I'd love to see his take on it. And it's such a hardcore subject. I mean, the subject of what it was about was pretty real. You know what I mean? Going into the uh, witness protection program, I'm sure she's in it for a horrifying reason. Um, Jodie Foster was like kind of killing it at this era in her career. Um, you know, this was around the era time of um, the accused, I think, oh. as well. So I almost get that vibe a little bit from it. But with that being said, I almost feel like it's a little darker because Hopper would make it. Hopper is a dark dude in, in a great way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and- yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing is that I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen the, uh, seen the film, but uh, knowing what Dennis Hopper has done that I have seen, that while it is not specifically said in this, mm-hmm. I would assume that he probably, uh, he probably got uh, more, you know, like a producer that kept on butting heads with him or. Or things like that, because as 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 Matt said, uh, Dennis Hopper was the kind of guy that you gave the money to. He did his thing, and then he dropped off the film. And you know they probably did that, and then like, oh, we don't like how this is going, so we'll cut off twenty minutes. And of course, you know, a guy like Dennis Hopper, he shoots everything and everything has a reason why it's shot. It's not, he doesn't just go out and just shoot random things and like, oh, you know, we might use this, we might use that. Well, maybe he did, because that was some people's style too in that era, is they just kind of get, they'd get rocked out on some drugs (laughs) and they would just let cameras roll and they'd capture a bunch of footage and then bring it back and add it together. So maybe, but, but there are certain people that did that same thing that made masterpieces. So like, it's all, it all depends on the style of the directing and the, that, that, you know, I, these storytellers, everybody's different. So if you need a different, follow a different formula to tell your story, then you got to follow a different formula, but whatever gets you to a happy outcome of what you're trying to tell, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I could definitely see Hopper clashing with oh, yeah. producers. Yeah, Dennis Hopper definitely is a guy that I can see getting into issues with producers you and know, anyone who had the nine, uh, money, hands on the money. 92 was an interesting time, especially for independents, people breaking into Hollywood. You know, that was right around the break of, you know, the Kevin Smith, Tarantino's, Rodriguez's, yeah. Linklater, and all that. Um, and uh, there's this is no thing, and I think even just agreeing, I think that Hopper would come from a place at the time where even uh, even coming to an agreement with a producer is almost like making a deal with the devil. Yeah, like that's a time where you be difficult just to be difficult. You know what I mean? Like you're not like if you're an artist and they're making you they're making you cut a scene on fucking Monday, then you're making the rest of the week super difficult. I know there's uh, I forget which filmmaker it was. I want to say Frankenheimer, but I could be wrong. But I met, there was a dude that uh, there was a producer dealing with some filmmaker and like they didn't like they didn't trust him. So like they, they shot a bunch of they shot all the scenes out of order. They usually do that anyways. But like yeah. the way they did it was more more out of order than usual. And it just looked like nothing was making sense. And then in like the last part of the week that they like till it was done he there was he shot one little thing that tied everything together so it was all one of these things where he made the producer worry that they weren't going to have what they needed 
and why are you catching all this random footage you don't need? But then at the last minute to like fuck with him, he, he shot something that like perfectly tied it all together. <laughs> so I think, but there's a respect that needs to be there between producer and filmmaker. And then yeah. it's definitely good to have a line uh, where there's people that just produce and then there's filmmakers that just creatively make, tell the stories. And you need more of that and a collaboration between them with both those people on the same page. And I think, you know, that the Hollywood system works a lot, you know, it's a weird, it's a, it's a boss type thing where you come there and they almost know you're the artist and they want to like, you know, support you, but they got to answer to somebody. Um, and they're in, you know, they're, they're, they're in, you know, they're answering for the money that goes out more than the actual filmmaker is. And, yeah. You know, there is ego on both sides of the thing. So there's pissing contests at certain times and it's a creative atmosphere. So let's say the director says, you know, we really need this shot and want this shot. And if you are a creative person, you can understand maybe a shot that was in your head from the moment you wrote the script might even be in storyboards ahead of time before you get on set. And that day, because of a time situation, the producer might just say, you know what, we don't have time to set up the dolly We don't in the tracks. You're just going to shoot a standard shot of this on, on, on tripod, on the sticks, just, and that's it. You can't get no. And, you know, the move, movement with a camera can tell a story with itself. It's like music, yeah. you know what I mean? So, like, you're, if, if that's very important to you and now the producer is saying, well, just do it, this, throw this in there, because the producer just wants to get the day done. Yeah. And you're the one that's supposed to focus about the creative part of it. So, like, you were going to do this cool shot that would make it, the audience go, oh, shit, I'm, I'm, like, there and I'm feeling this. And they're like, uh, well, now we don't got time. Just do like fucking, can't you just get a voiceover and add it to a black screen? You know what I mean? And it's like, no, it's the end of the movie. And it's like, just get the fucking voiceover. We'll put it over <laughs> a picture. Um, so it, it does get super tricky. So I almost feel like it's that, but I would love to see the Dennis Hopper version because I support Hopper to the fullest uh, degree of all time. Um, next up is the underneath by Steven Soderbergh. Um, I think it's a beautiful film to look at. And I think the score is beautiful. He says, um, but 15 seconds in, 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 and I know we're in trouble because of how fucking long it takes to get through the opening credits. You know, he could be onto something here. That's just an indication of what's wrong with this thing. It's just totally sleepy. The film about a recovering gambling addict was as unsurprising. Uh, was a, it was an unsurprising box office flop. I can't say I'd recommend it to anybody, he said, other than to look at it in the context of someone's career. Interesting. So he's very hard on himself, which is interesting. I haven't seen this film. Um, it almost sounds like if it's, too, if it's too long or too slow, maybe he was trying to capture like, like maybe the loneliness of, of being a gambler where it's just you by yourself with you know when you're not gambling it's just you waiting to gamble you know what i mean one of those long drawn out scenes type deal but then when it was all put together it just didn't work you know what i mean like that shit happens all the time a lot of times you'll, you can you can picture something in your head that even when you get it exactly the way it's supposed to be sometimes you still got to work with it a little more to make it work yeah ultimately the way you want it to i mean uh from uh from what the matt read uh, to me, it sounds like it probably was an editing thing yeah. where I mean, the thing is that you have a director that, you know, 
does everything, you know, yeah. puts, uh, makes, makes a, uh, a film. But a film, it honestly can be made and broken by its editing. Right. And I know that there's, there's a lot of directors that literally sit in the editing booth and like, okay, this is how I want this cut. This, And then there's also times where the director does the film and the producer's like, okay, we got the film, we give it to the editor, and the director really doesn't have a lot of say in how it gets cut. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the director goes out and he, he does all of this, you know, blood, sweat, and tears to make a film, and then, you know, he's giving it over to someone and just hoping that whoever does it is... You know, well, he's looking like, well, this has to be an hour and 25 minutes and it's two hours. Well, let's just cut out this part and that part. And then it's like, but that's the whole soul of the, the film. Right. But you keep in all the cool action scenes, which is, you know, great, but there's no point to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, I mean, especially since he made a comment about the the. Uh, beginning being so long, that sounds like an editing issue to me. Mm-hmm. So, so I would assume that, um, like I said, I haven't seen the movie, but I would assume that he probably shot the film. He handed it over to the producers. They handed it over to an editor. That you know, he either wasn't in the same room or wasn't allowed to, or whether you know it was like, okay, you did your job, now we'll do our job, and then there was like, yeah, miscommunication, or just the editor, you know, did his thing and just didn't drive with the pacing because pacing is so important in the movie, right? To the pacing that Sodenberg was hoping to have, and that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it is a matter of, you know, the editor, because uh, he's a big enough name that I felt like he would have been there. Maybe he just didn't like it. Maybe there was nothing he could do with what he had at the end. You know, again, you know, who falls that? But it is what it is. It's one of those things you got to prepare for in the big world, the big business. The big world, the big business. The big old business of the film. Which they know more about than us, unfortunately. But, yeah, Soderbergh is a good man. And, uh, you know, sometimes they get out of your control, I guess. That's the thing, you know, with the big money. Whenever you have big money coming, that ain't your money. Whoever owns that money is going to want to have big opinion going oh. down on that. So, what uh, we got next, big man? Uh, next one is Thor. The Ooh. Dark World oh, yeah. by Ellen Taylor. Now, Ellen Taylor of Game of Thrones and Sopranos fame mm-hmm. seemed a, a perfect fit for Thor, the hero god of thunder, who spoke in Shakespearean prose. Uh, when the sequel was released, many were dis- disappointed with the film with somehow wasted Christopher Elkelson, who played the villain. Taylor later criticized the project, saying, The Marvel experience was particularly wrenching because... I was sort of given absolute freedom while we were shooting, and then in post, it turned into a different movie. Mm-hmm. So that is something I hope never to repeat and don't wish upon anybody else. Mm-hmm. Now, this sounds like a situation that I've I've heard and, and seen before in a lot of other um, projects of kind of this caliber where 
they're like, okay, here's a great director. We really like his stuff. We think he's a great fit. And we don't want to stifle his creativity. So here's this. Go do whatever you want. We will not interfere. And then, you know, he get uh, the uh, producers, the editor gets the, the, the uh, footage and all that. And then the movie you end up having is not the movie that you shot. Right. And, and watching Thor The Dark World, I kind of felt that because there was a lot of times where I'm watching this and I'm like, things are unexplained, things are kind of seemed rushed. And it it just didn't really have a you know strong thread all the way through. Yeah. Now Christopher Eccleston is a great actor, huge fan of his, and I always think that you know he should be used more. I mean, as the villain, they didn't have a lot for him to do, and a lot of people like to put him in like the worst villains that have been in the MCU, mm-hmm. and a lot of times. That has less to do with the director and more to do with the actual studio. Where, I mean, for example, now going and talking about the Iron Man uh, uh, section, Iron Man 2 with Mickey Rourke as Whiplash. Love it. Um, there was a whole thing where they were talking to Mickey Rourke and he said that when he signed up, he did not want to do just a super uh, superhero movie. He wanted, he with uh, John Favreau, they made this big... Uh, great um, backstory to him. They shot all of it. There's a lot of depth to his character, but when you watch Iron Man 2, that is not there. It's just bad guy shows up. Bad guy gets his ass kicked. Iron Man wins. And that's pretty much how Thor Dark World was, in that it was all you know, you you got the threat, you got the uh, the tension between uh, Thor and the girl that he kind of connected with the first time. They really didn't really go far with that. There was a lot of threads just dangling. So, I mean, I enjoyed the movie, but it definitely was not a great sequel or, or anything like that because it just felt like there was like the soul of it was taken out and they just did the, the scenes they thought were funny and that had action. Yeah. And anything that built upon that, they really didn't focus. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why they thought that because he was in The Sopranos, that that meant he could carry the Thor film. Well, I think I think the thing is because he did The Sopranos and The uh, uh, I know Game the, of Thrones. I know Game of Thrones, worth mentioning, because, you know, Thor yeah. is a fucking big muscly dude. But I don't know why Sopranos need to be mentioned. Well, I, I think I think the big thing was that they kind of was thinking about bringing him in as the reason they brought Josh Whedon. is bringing in the director from the TV series, so you're able to jumble so many characters, giving them you know decent screen time to. Yeah, they need to watch DJ Stand the Man and give me a <laughs> comic book movie. Woo! Yeah, because this guy, he knows how to do I jumbled characters in a good way. Yeah, right. he knows how to do it, right. All right, let's go. All right, next up, my hero in life, the one and only Stanley Kubrick. I thought it was me. My, my, my dead, my hero, my dead hero. <laughs> You're my living hero. 
Um, few filmmakers have spotless filmographies. Stanley Kubrick believed the blotch on his was fair and desire. Uh, the renowned perfectionist cinematics debut as this uh, stature of a direct as a director group. Oh, excuse me. Kubrick was said to grow ever more disgruntled with Fear and Desire, the anti-war film about four soldiers trapped behind enemy lines. Reports emerged in the 60s that Kubrick had destroyed the original negative print and was hoping to destroy all leftover prints. In 1964, Kubrick called the film a serious effort, ineptly done. Yeah, you know, I, I own the film. I own Fear and Desire. It's yeah. good times. I try to own everything. Yeah, he's just very hard on himself type deal. Um, but my my take is he probably changed his opinion on war. I think more so than the actual, more so than the actual quality of the film or whatever. I think he, his opinion changed on more. If this was an anti-war film, and I'm not to say that he was pro-war, but. Um, you know, Full Metal Jacket was. I mean, Full Full Metal Jacket is a weird movie. It's a masterpiece, and within the masterpiece, it's because it's both an anti-war and a pro-war film within itself. I feel, yeah. you know, that's kind of the genius of it. Um, so who's to say? But I, I almost contemplate maybe it might not be the actual film, but it might be the message in the film that he doesn't like anymore, even if he's not saying that outright. Because I, as a filmmaker myself. I feel like if I changed, if I if I made a film earlier in my career, and then later in my career I, you know, for whatever reason, you know, changed my opinion on that thing, I probably wouldn't look at that other thing in such high regard if it was, you know, glamorizing a different way of, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or however, however you will. And uh, war is one of those things. War is one of those weird things to be vocal on because, unfortunately, a lot of people lose their lives for it. Yeah. So to take one side or the other is tricky, you know what I mean? Because and a lot of the, you know, some people are evil about it, but I think a lot of the people that are against war, they're not against the people that die. I think they're, 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 they're anti-war because they don't want those people to die. In the same way, the pro-war people vibe with the fact that you almost, you know, that's the ultimate sacrifice, you know, things have to happen for change, you know, so like, it's a weird, it's a weird vibe, and there's a line, you know what I mean, so I almost think that Mr. Kubrick might have, might have had a change of heart on the themes more so than, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, it's low quality, we didn't have the time to do it, or certain ones talk about the message being, you know, corrupted in a way, and uh, Kubrick was a dude I would never. He was so he was such a perfectionist and knew knew the legacy he was building. I think I think Kubrick was very very aware of his legacy even while he was alive building it. So I don't think he would ever go back and say anything was a mistake or uh, I was naive or any any anything like that. I don't think he'd do it. An artist wouldn't do it. I, I don't think an an artist uh, is god of his own world and God would never. <laughs> Never admit to a mistake. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're all children. The films are all children. You would never you would never admit to one of your children being a mistake. <laughs> I'd hope not at least. Yeah. That's terrible. But uh, uh yeah, so I think that what's your take on the on, on Well, the I mean the thing is I agree with a lot of what you said right. and um 
true. I mean, my my thing is, I actually uh, would be taking more of the effect that because <laughs> Stanley Kubrick is such a perfectionist. Yeah. And his whole thing was, you know, building the legacy Correct. of Stanley Kubrick and all of that. Mm-hmm. That if there's a film that did not, in his opinion, meet the level of legacy for whatever reason, whether it was he didn't have enough money to exactly do everything he wanted, or whether, you know, as he got older, ideas come by, like, damn, you know, I mean, Stanley Kubrick is a great director, but he he's not a god. I mean, right. he, he's... I mean, there's going to be times where he does something, and then years later, he's like, oh, if I just did this, I right. learned this on this film. If I did this at that time for this film, right. it would have fit perfectly into my legacy. And my my feeling with Fear and Desire was it was a film that he did early on, and that, you know, as he kept on getting to the point where everyone was talking about the greatness that Stanley Kubrick, you know, he looks back and he's like, well, all these things I put in, you know, the little Easter eggs, I put in the, you know, the Kubrick Mm. style. I really, you know, kind of build my legacy with these. And I think with Fear and Desire, he just felt like as a movie that's supposed to be part of his legacy, it just didn't measure up. Right. I think a lot of filmmakers, their first films, they kind of, I wouldn't say are embarrassed or ashamed of them, but also, but almost have, uh, um, you know, they just, they know that it's like their first effort and they know they became better. You know what I mean? Yeah. So speaking of becoming better. (laughs) The next one is Batman and Robin. Joel Schumacher. The lost boy himself. Almost everyone involved with Batman and Robin seems to hate the final product. George Clooney has apologized for his bat-nippled version of the Cape Crusader, while director Joel Schumacher has said sorry multiple times. Look, I apologize, he said in 2017. I want to apologize to every fan that was disappointed because I think I owe them that. After the widely maligned film reached cinema, Schumacher said, it was treated like scum. Yeah. It was like I had murdered a baby. He continued, <laughs> and, and and the truth is, uh, he did. But uh, go, going on to uh, uh, because I have a lot of a lot of thoughts on this. Oh my! I love Joel, so you can let you go, Adam. I, I I like I like Joel. Um, I actually saw an interview with him, which kind of uh, put things in a different perspective. Which you know, I I give Joel uh, credit for where he said that he was trying to do a fun movie. He thought he was doing a fun movie and, you know, just the, the reaction was such, such an opposite from what he, he expected that he was shocked. And the thing is, honestly, this is the first time I can think of where, um, the fans of the original source material really voiced their displeasure. Uh, they, I mean, now you do, uh, I mean, there's a million comic book movies, there's anim- uh, films based off of animated series, I mean, all of those are being pushed forward, and all you hear is like, 
oh, I was a fan of Batman since I was, you know, eight years old, and this is not the Batman I, I, I want, or I, I really like the dark version, and this isn't it. Um, the thing is, honestly, to blame for the movie, you have to blame McDonald's. McDonald's, Ma- McDonald's, yes, McDonald's is the reason we have Batman and Robin, okay? And the reason why Mr. Uh, Tim Burton uh, no longer uh, was able to go forward with his version of, of his uh, series. Uh, that's Be- awful. The thing was that, you know, when uh, Tim Burton did Batman Returns, a lot of people... That was uh, too gross, too dark, too disgusting to. Because at that time you had, you know, uh, McDonald's Dude, doing a little, a little happy meals with the penguin and all Good that. Day, yeah. yeah, trying to tie it in and tie in the kids. And of course, anyone who's seen Batman Returns, heck, even Batman the first one with Jack Nicholson Classic. and and uh, Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that. It was. It's a film not for children. I remember when Batman came out, I was like huge Batman fan. And I wanted to see it, and my folks were like, "No, you're too young." And I was like, "No, I'm not. It's Batman." For that Batman, yeah, I was too young. Yeah, for 80, yeah. 89 Batman, you were too young. I was eight. I watched eighty nine Batman. I was allowed to watch that. There were certain things they held off from me, but I was allowed to watch 89 Batman. Okay. To let everyone know, I was living in an Amish community at the time. Okay. And uh, I had to raise the barn at like uh, 5 a.m. that morning. Woo! Woo! But yeah, I mean, the thing is that. I'm with you. And. Um, and of course, I mean, when they did Batman Forever, Batman Forever didn't do as well as like the Tim Burton ones, but it did well enough. Right. I mean, and they could do the uh, you know tie-ins with Happy Meals and all of that. And and of course, then of course, since Joel Schumacher did that one, they gave him you know Quartz Blondes to do the next one, Batman and Robin. And of course, I. He just kept going with kind of the vein, you know, kind of making a modern Adam West, Burt Ward type of Batman that was good for the whole family. Which, you know, it's fun enough, but the thing was that it it felt too kiddy. It didn't have any bite to it. And, and the fact was there were just too many lame jokes yeah. In it, and yeah, not. I mean, you got the bat credit card, you got the bat nipples. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it was a perfect throwback, in my opinion, to the Adam West, uh, you know, uh, television show. Yeah, it was a, a great throwback to that. If you like that, then I would not be surprised if you like Batman Forever and Batman and Robin because it was more of like a live action cartoon than an actual, you know, uh, film. Yeah. It really was more like a live-action yeah. cartoon. I'll give you that for sure. Yeah. For sure. I think Batman Beyond was the cartoon at the time. Or Batman Adventures of Batman. Yeah. Um, one of those were the animated cartoon of the time. Yeah, and that was actually darker than the actual movie. That's true. But, yeah. So, I mean, like I said, I I understand. I mean, Joel had made it clear that he was trying to make a... Um, 
fun film, and it, it blew up in his face. And uh, and the thing is, he really was one of the first directors that really got hit hard by you know the fan reaction of of what he did with the source material. And and the thing is, Batman and Robin, I, I, I'll be the first one to admit, is not a great movie. But I do uh, respect that Joel Schumacher was trying to do a style that pretty much it was obvious the producers and the big companies were pushing for. And he gave them what they wanted. I mean, a lot of times that the producers are only looking at the money. How much money can I make off of this? Not whether this has anything to do with the source material or whether it's any good. They don't care. Producers do not care whether it's good. They care whether they make money. That's the only thing they care about. Yeah. And Batman and Robin was a specific example of where, you know, the producers were like, hey, we could tie in McDonald's. We could uh, bring in Toys R Us. We can, you know, make all this money off of, you know, merchandising, which is great. But, you know, you also have to remember that a huge portion of your fans, you know, are, you know, now adults grown up with this, and they have gone into more docky, edgy material, and that's what they want to see, because they've already seen the Adam West, Burt Ward uh, series. They want something more, and they try to give them more of what they already had. And that's why I think it was a big uh, disappointment. On paper, it looked like a good idea, because you thought you'd get, like, a Lost Boys-style Batman, which would have been cool. Yeah. Um... Speaking of Lost Boys, the day the clown cried, notoriously um, film that was notoriously hated by the director, you know Jerry Lewis, the late great over there. He was fr- he was nice to Gilbert Gottfried. That's all I know about him. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, known for the you know reinventing comedy, maybe or being one of the biggest comedy acts, uh, fame, com- biggest movie comedy stars of all times. Yeah. Um, you know, his film, The Day the, the Day the Clown Cried, has never been released. The director, who also starred as the leading character, locked the film about a clown arrested in Nazi Germany for drunkenly defaming Hitler in a private vault at, after completion. Uh, Lewis thought the film was so bad, bad, bad that he often refused to discuss the project, only commenting very occasionally, I was ashamed of the work. And I was grateful I had the power to contain it all and never let anyone see it. It could have been a wonderful, but I slipped up. I didn't quite get it, he said in 2013, which I can respect that. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, when, you, when dealing with such a serious subject as that, you know, you get in there and, you know, sometimes it gets away from you or something doesn't land the way it, in a film like that, jokes landing wrong a couple too many times it's gonna be is gonna be something to get canceled over probably like something you'd be getting canceled over nowadays so like i understand he he seen the curve coming <laughs> he knew he knew what was coming yeah. uh he knew that was that would have i think there's other things that kind of burden on his legacy but um that would have been a big one for him too i'm sure I think Criterion flirted with the idea of putting it out at one point after he died, but I don't. I think it's like, you know, the thing is that if it was if it was in a, a safe and never destroyed, that just means he didn't really want it released when he was alive. If he didn't want it released ever, I feel he would have destroyed it. What's your take? 
Well, I mean, um, no, I don't know this. Uh, maybe you do. Mm. Is this the only film he directed? No, he directed a lot of stuff. He did? Yeah. Okay. Some of his biggest movies, I believe, he directed. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is... They let him do anything. Like he said, he was blessed to be able to hide it. There was a point when he... You get a figure they gave him. He probably got serious. He got regular budget (laughs) to go run off and make that movie. And then he came back and was like, yeah, I don't want this to be seen. And they said, okay. yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is that okay, going with the uh, thing that Matt said that yeah. if he did direct a bunch of his movies, I mean, when you watch uh, Jerry Lewis movies, okay, there's a style, and and he's good with that style, but none of them are really how should I say dramatic or hard hitting or have any Jerry good... Jerry Lewis also had dark years with drugs, I believe. So it's very possible that he went into a hole of drugs for years and thought that the right thing to do would make this movie kind of uniting everybody in some awkward way. The whole idea could have came from a drug a drug thing, and then he went in there, did it, and then when he was looking at it, he was like, nobody needs to see this ever. I think that's kind of the deal. Well, it could be. I mean, the thing is that I'm, what, what could be a possibility is the fact that he... Ha- he it was a passion project. He wanted to do that. Yeah. And as as a director, you know, he filmed it, and when he looked at it, he realized that maybe his talent as a director wasn't best suited for this subject material. That's what I think that might have been an issue, where you know he took all 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 of what he learned directing his films, and he then tried to use that to make this very poignant and and interesting piece. And uh, when he looked at it, he probably was like, uh, oh my God, if... And and when you're dealing with a subject matter like that, you have to be, you know, extremely sure that what you have done, what you have shot will work. Because like Matt said, that if even when he did that, he put it out, if... He did a film about a clown in Nazi Germany and he didn't do it right and it came out. People could have really, you know, crucified him on on, on making that film. And that's and, and like he said, you know, unlike a lot of other directors, he had the ability to squash it. So there wasn't like, you know, a producer like, well, you know, we dropped fifty thousand, fifty million dollars on this, you know, whether you like it or not, we're putting it out. So, I mean, lucky for him that he was able to have the foresight of looking at what he's done, realizing that he couldn't really that it wasn't really going to work when he released it. So, uh he took a chance and uh it didn't work out, so he decided to bury it. And and the fact is that, as Matt said, you that yeah. I mean, if he didn't want anyone ever to watch it, he would have just burned it. But it's something about, I, I think, being a, a an artist, that even if you do, like, the worst possible project, okay, you still, because it still has a piece of you in it. And especially this definitely was very close to him. He probably just... He he just wanted to keep the it just kind of like I don't know as 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 a memory of where he tried to do something and he failed, but you know it still 
was a learning experience of what he could and couldn't pull off. And it's kind of like, you know, the guy who keeps, you know, he's battling alcoholism and he still has like, you know, a beer stein from the first bar he went to. Kind of a memory of like, you know, know, don't go down this road again. Yeah. So, I mean, that could have been, you know, uh, Jerry Lewis's don't go down that road again. This is to remind you what you can and cannot actually pull off. It could also have been like a really good movie, too. If you, you know, you never think of that, that it could have been like a masterpiece of a film that he said, you know what, I'm known really for comedy now. So me releasing same thing, how Mel Brooks had his hand in the elephant man, but didn't really have his name on it. If he, uh, if, if, if Jerry Lewis, maybe that film is a masterpiece and he's letting appropriate time uh, pass and then he's going to let it drop out and after death and people be like, oh, wow, this was really good. But uh, who we got up next? The gentleman. Next. Next, we have the Fantastic Four. Now, which one is it? It is the one directed by Josh Trank. Trank? Trank. What a guy. Yeah. Everything was looking good for uh, Fantastic Four before filming began. Some of Hollywood's most promising actors were playing the uh, uh, characters Michael B. Jordan, Miles Teller, Kate Mara, and Jamie Bell. Well, Josh uh, Trank, coming off of the back of Runaway Success Chronicle, was hired to direct. During post-production, through everything fell apart, Trank was forced by the studio, Fox, to do extensive reshoots. You can tell which scenes were re- reshot because Mars' wig looks awful and uh, Teller has varying length of stubble. The month before the film's release, the director spoke out on Twitter, a year ago, I had a fantastic version of this, he wrote, and it would have received great reviews. You'll probably never see it. That's reality, though. The film bombed at the box office with Trank's tweet reportedly costing Fox between $5 million and $10 million. And that, uh, for some reason, that probably won't hurt him as much as it would hurt somebody else, that yeah. losing Fox $10 million. Yeah, I mean, but, heck, I lost some $10 million, and now I'll work with this guy. I know. Ain't that the worst? <laughs> the ultimate price. Yeah, the uh, I'm, I don't know. This dude seems like one of those dudes that was just like, I think that he's seen a cut that he didn't like, and he realized the film was, that maybe he, I lean more towards he lost, that's a gigantic fucking project. Chronicle was a big project, but... It really isn't when you really think about it. When you really watch Chronicle, there's a lot of CGI and shit. But like, as a, you know, it can all be. That's all on a on a soundstage, I believe. You can green screen a lot of that shit. Now the comic book films are too, but there's a lot to a comic book film. Uh, like, you know what I mean? If you're coming from smaller budgeted films or like dramatic, more like dramatic or indie, you know, emotionally themed films, and you hopping into like. A comic book movie is a lot. Um, I almost feel like the dude kind of got in over his head and kind of protect the future of what his career would be. Came out accusing other things, which is you know not a good look to do to blame your producers or whatever you're blaming. But it's all. But it's probably in the eyes of the public and the audience, you know, and other producers. I assume. Uh, trying to make yourself look good would be is what he's trying to do. So I don't know. I get a weird vibe from it. I remember him freaking out. And uh, yeah. I remember the impact of him do everybody was like, 
it was a big deal when he tweeted that because everybody, it was kind of like a nail in the coffin before the say that dude, like to say that before it comes out. Yeah. Is fucking ridiculous. Like I don't, and the fact that he came back to make more movies and I'll say this, I actually seen Capone, which was his follow up after this. I, I like Capone. I thought Capone was good. Tom Hardy is the shit. Tom Hardy was really good. I mean, I get, gotta give it up to Tom Hardy for playing Al Capone. He he murdered it. Fucking great job. But um, yeah, I don't know about this dude. I I have a biased opinion of gentlemen like this because it's like he came up a little too quick and uh, right to the fucking head of the table, yeah. pretty pretty quick. And he's made he made two big mistakes: say that a movie's garbage before it came out, and then be the helm of a, a gigantic budgeted film that fails. Those are two gigantic mistakes and he's still around for some reason. So he knows somebody, somebody has got his back. For, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. He, uh, he, he, physical, he's... not just the spiritual, <laughs> but someone's got his back in the physical. Yeah. Uh, I'm hooking him up because you don't get chances like that. Um, yeah. If, if that happened to one of us, we'll be out on our ass back here. Uh, if that happened to some people that were bigger in Hollywood, that they'd be out on their ass. Yeah. Certain people that might not play the game as well, uh, that need to hold on a little tighter than most, would, would, would probably disappear into the sunset with a mistake like that. But, you know, uh, going, going out before a movie's released, I think is so disrespectful to that project. Going out and saying that it's garbage. Even if you're watching the film, you watch the film and you go, wow, this isn't what I expected it to be. I really don't like this film. You have a responsibility, you know what I mean, to, to your, your bosses, the producers, and to your audience. You know, the people that some of these people already want to hate it ahead of time, you know what I mean? You know what you're dealing with. Uh, fucking, you play the game, dude. There's certain games you have to play. Yeah. That's a game you have to play. Him coming out before the movie drops and saying the movie's no good. It's like what? Are you, like what the fuck is that? Like I can't even wrap my head around saying that now. And this happened years ago. It's like and and the dudes let, allowed back to fucking make more movies. Yeah, I mean, what the I, fuck is going on? Yeah, I mean, honestly, Hollywood system, get your priorities in order. <laughs> even if you ain't giving us work, you fucking yeah, you guys are on front street. Everybody knows how you're acting foul. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing is, when a director does that, or a director says, oh, um, it's not my fault. It's because, oh, the audience uh, doesn't like, you know, strong women in, in, in film. Or, you know, it's like, it's not my fault. It's, it's because, you know, of, of uh, you know, something else. And... Is it possible these were all people that were kids that never had to deal with responsibility as well? Yeah. Could that be a possibility? Oh, shit. Oh, fuck. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's... The fact is, if it's a good story, it doesn't matter what um, anyone, the audience's beliefs or whatever. If it's a good, engaging story, especially if it's also based on a franchise that there's so many fans of, Okay, you're going to have people come in. And even if it wasn't great, you'd have people just like, oh, you know, it's not as good as this one, but I, I still enjoy it, that, you know? That, that was my take on the, the current reboots of the Jurassic Park movies, where I didn't think those two reboots were any good. 
especially the first one that people they got the second one made. I thought that was very mediocre, but it sold tickets because people want to see a Jurassic yeah. Park movie. That's what it is. That's all it is. It's not that it was a good movie. You're going to get so many, and that's why they do reboots and shit, is you're going to get so many people showing up just because they like the original. Yeah. And then you want the, so that's a big chunk of folks. Then you want to bring in new people. That's another chunk. And that's how they look at the movies they're going to make and such. It's like, okay, how are we going to get the most people in theaters? Yeah. And that's why we're seeing reboots. But you ever, you all know that. All you motherfuckers out there know what we're talking about. That's why you're watching the show. But yeah, I mean, uh, and and the thing is that any director, okay, that comes out and uh, either lambases their movie before it even comes out or attacks the audience for, you know, low turnout, okay, I have, I have very little respect for that because it's kind of like, you know, whether the movie ended up turning out the way you had hoped, okay? And I've been a part of a different, uh, bunch of different things where I had high expectations, didn't come out the way I had hoped. But, you know, I still support. I was in the film and, and all of that stuff. But especially when you're a director, it's like, okay, whether you like it or not, and as we've talked about, producers, but, uh putting their two cents in and all that, a lot of times mucks around with the initial idea or the concept that the uh, director has, which, of course, ends up with a mediocre film. But when the director himself comes out before it even drops, saying, oh, yeah, uh, this is dog shit. Um, (laughs) I mean, honestly, what comes to mind is kind of like um, a kid in, in, in school who comes in like, Hey, teach. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I did. I I did this project. You know, it could have been good. It could have been good, but you know, um, I stayed up late uh, playing video games. Uh, I I hooked up with a girl uh, last week. So Ooh. you know, I I just really actually you know put any actual effort into this. Uh, so this is going to be dog shit. So don't have high expectations. Okay, I'm sorry, but that's how it came across. It was like, hey, um. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something happened. I don't know what it is. Yeah, my name's a part of it, but you know, it, it's not really that good. It's like trying to you know distance yourself from your own product. Yeah. Uh, before it drops, and especially when you are part of a thing. This isn't like a small, tiny uh, thing that you know it'll go out and then you can you know hide in the back. Uh, you know, Vault or anything like that. This is a film that has so much press and so many things building up to it. Yeah, he doesn't have that power yet. Yeah. Maybe so. the people, maybe his friends do. You never know. Maybe. Maybe. You never but know. yeah, I mean, the thing is that I watched the movie. I was, I guess say I was disappointed with how they, they went with it. But I was like, fine. I mean, it just looked like they tried to, you know, uh, do the Fantastic Four and kind of uh, pitch it towards a younger audience. They took uh, they took the basis from uh, one of the many comic books on the Fantastic Four that dealt with how they became to be. And, of course, they took their own liberties with it. And, like I said, I mean, it just didn't work. And, and the fact that, you know, even before the film dropped, they came out like, oh, yeah, um, the film would have been great if my initial plan actually happened. And then then the question I and I'm sure a lot of people are like, okay, 
why did your initial plan not happen? You're the director. You're the captain of the ship. I mean, I mean, it's like, and I mean, it's one thing when a lot of these directors they talk about their films. It's after it's already been out there, it's been circulated, and people either have become fans of it or they haven't. But you know, even when you have a director that does a mistake, I mean, unless you're Jerry Lewis, who can just you know kibosh it and hide in a vault, you know, you kind of have to be like, okay, this is it. Let's see how people take it. If they you know don't like it, then like, well, I'm sorry. This is this is what happens. I, unfortunately, I dove a little deeper. I didn't want to do it, but I did. Uh-oh. God I know, I know. He, he's the son of Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker Richard Trank. Ah. So that's his friend who helps him out. That's nice. Yeah. Um, now, he was, he's, in, he's in good company on the Chronicle writing team, of course, with, the, with, with Maximilian Landis, um, who's you know, known to be a bit of a skis bag. Fathers, you know, John Landis, you know, I got love for John Landis. Some people don't like John Landis because of things that went down. Some, you know, some of the, you know, on some Twilight Zone sets, you know what I mean? But uh, I don't know if I can blame the man for that. You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not jiving. I'm not jiving. Maximilian Landis is, uh, is for I hear he's not that great of a gentleman. I hear he's kind of a bad dude, um, and he, he he's he's kind of you know in cahoots with the, the, this gentleman. And this gentleman looks like fucking. This gentleman looks like somebody. Uh, Joshua Joshua Trang looks like somebody that you catch outside of your fucking at night your, your window at night. Hey hey hey! You want to see a movie? Hey 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 hey. Let's just say Josh Trank makes fucking Rich Ramirez look like Fabio. <laughs> Let's just say that. And that's the picture with the fucked up teeth. Ooh. So, oh, come on. Josh Trank, let's do lunch. Head us up. Get you on the Boombasta cast. Bring on your boy Maximilian Landis. That's what I want to do. So, next up, we will talk about Dune, the David Lynch film. Um, originally supposed to be Alejandro Hadarowski's Dean, uh, yeah. which I would love to have seen. If anybody out there has never seen the documentary Hadarowski's Dune, that's with a J, J-O-D-O, um, director of, you know, um, El Topo, The Holy Mountain, um, Santa Sangri, the beautiful, magnificent Santa Sangri. Uh, he's a great art house director. Um, but where we're going, he was, check out that documentary, you know, check out that documentary. You'll like it. That's a good documentary. Uh, but anyways, the documentary he started, he was originally tapped to do Dune. Um, was it Herbert West? What's his fucking what's writer? Who wrote the book? Yeah. Dune. No, Herbert West is from reanimator. Uh, maybe Herbert West did. Maybe the fucking, I don't yeah, even remember. Yeah, that was with something. I think I thought so, too, but you never know. So we'll go. So anyways, Dune, um, when Hodorowski stepped down from Dune, or they stepped him down, um, they said, we need another weirdo filmmaker to do Dune. Who can we get? 
oh, let's get David Lynch. Why? He's Sam Hayes' favorite filmmaker. <laughs> so that's what they did. They got David Lynch in there. I think this film might have been a little too much for David. You know what I mean? I think he's good for those. There's certain and I love David Lynch, but there's certain filmmakers that are just good with smaller budgets, smaller indie type films. It's more about the story and the characters than it is about hoopla, like uh, big sand dunes and shit like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think this was kind of making an, an artist go Hollywood. Uh, I don't think it worked. This is another situation where making an, a true artist work within the Hollywood system was a failure. Um, but with that being said, following the success of the Oscars best, uh, best picture winner, the elephant man, like we said before, you know, Mel Brooks was, had his hand in that, but he didn't, it was very under the radar. Um, so I wonder if Lewis, if Lewis's day, the clown cried could be a masterpiece. You never know. Um, but, you know, David Lynch could have done almost anything. Despite having not read the book, Lynch agreed to adapt Dune, choosing the project over the third Star Wars. <clears throat> so that's what that style of film was just what was popping at that time. Frank Herbert, there it is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he turned down Return of the Jedi, which is interesting, probably for the better. Uh, Lynch soon started working on turning Frank Herbert's epic novel into a screenplay turning in over five drafts, yet despite the preparation time, the final results were less than satisfactory for the director. I started selling uh, out selling out on Dune, he said. I love David Lynch. He's the shit. Straight up just tells you, I started selling out on Dune. I love him, dude. He's the best. Uh, looking back, it's no one's fault but my own. I probably shouldn't have done that picture, but I saw tons and tons of possibility for things I loved. And this was the structure to do them in. That's probably the most realist answer anybody has ever given to something like this. Much love to David Lynch. He's the best. Um, yeah. So anybody seen the film, you know, I mean, it's not quite what it could be. It was done a while back where there was, you know, limit limitations and such, but um, it's still pretty bogus. You know what I mean? But uh, I just think it was a matter of not quite linking up the appropriate director with the appropriate film. Um, just think of if they took that money and made more of a David Lynch type film, what we would have got out of that. <laughs> Imagine that. That would have been cool. Um, he would better off making his own film about sandworms and weird, you know what I mean? And it all leads into Blue Velvet. <laughs> it's the, the, the big desert turns out to be the fucking dirt. In the front, from the, the front yard in the beginning of Blue Belt. Very nice. He's a nice tie-in guy. But yeah, Lynch, I th I personally just think Lynch got in over, not in over his head. I think he was too much artist. I think that the studios bit off too much fucking artist and the flavor overwhelmed them in their mouth and they had to kind of, they spit it out. They didn't know what to do with it. And uh, that's what happened there. And whenever you spit out the flavor, don't let the flavor fully fucking digest. <laughs> you always run into a problem. I think that was the uh, the issue with that. But what we got up, uh, let me see here. Next up would be uh, next, a film. Yeah, next one so, is actually um, Alien 3. Alien 3, I believe you're right, David yeah. Fincher. Uh, David Fincher, yeah. The great David Fincher, just nominated for an Academy Award. David Fincher still fucking popping huge. Yeah. He would not have mentioned this if you won the Academy Award <laughs> this past week. And yeah. that film is... Uh, Alien 3. Woo! Uh, which is... David Fincher was just 28 years old. Bam. When the producers of Alien decided to bring the upstart on board their second sequel. 
with just five weeks preparation time, an unfinished script, and no real cloud behind his name, Fincher struggled with the uh, film. Oh, it was just awful, he said, later said. This is the worst thing that ever happened to me. In 2009, promoting the curious case of Benjamin Button. Not Belt. Not Benjamin Belt. No. Throw, throwback. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fincher elaborated. I had to work on it for two years, got fired off it three times, and had to fight for every single thing. No one hated it more than me. To this day, no one hates it more than me. That's tough words. Uh, and real quick, I'll, I'll say that I don't. I always lose track of how heavyweight. Fucking think of the franchise. Those first three franchises. You got Ridley Scott, James Cameron, and fucking David Fincher. Some of the greatest fucking directors of their time. You know what other franchise has that many gigantic fucking heavyweight directors attached yeah. to it? My God. So back, to, you were gonna say something? Yeah, I mean. Uh... The thing is, I mean, Alien 3 is definitely... Honestly, I don't think it's the worst Alien movie. Uh, it's definitely not a great Alien movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's... To be perfectly honest, the best part of Alien 3, they destroyed by the, uh, the upcoming sequel, Alien 4, yeah. which is the fact that you had... Ripley sacrificing herself with that baby uh, uh, chest burster popping out, mm-hmm. throwing herself into the lava. Yeah. Lead, hot lead, I think. Hot lead. All right. Same Whatever. Pain. Same pain. Same pain, same way going out. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, it was... Yeah. I mean, other than remembering that she's on, uh, she ends up crashing on the planet of uh, prisoners, a penal colony, and the fact that, you know, she died at the end that way. There's not a lot about the movie I really remember about. I mean, it was it was kind of like one of those movies you watch, yeah. and then you forget about it, and then you see it on TV, you're like... Oh, yeah, I don't remember anything about this. And then you watch it, and then you're like, I see why I don't remember anything about this. Uh, Alien 3, I enjoy Alien 3. It's one of those those films. I think the first three are really good. Like you said before, I think at four, it drops off a bit. Yeah. Um, I think Fincher, Fincher doesn't like this one, mainly because of, for the headaches. He doesn't really talk about it being like him hating the film. I think it's more of the experience because, like you said, he was fighting on it three times, which that sucks. Yeah. It took two years of his life. Everything was an uphill battle fight. And, um, you know, yeah, so, like, I feel that was just part of it because I, I remember the movie not being that bad. I remember it was fun. I think The Rock, not like the original The Rock. He was a comedian, I think. He had that show on Fox for a while, too. Huh. He was the chubbier black gentleman. Okay, okay, yeah. I believe yes. his name was... Rock or the ROC. Uh, I can't, maybe that was the name of the show or something. Um, but, anyways, he was in it. He was super cool. You know, of course, um, I remember the jumping into the lead part was very memorable. There's also a scene when she's getting checked over by like a nurse's aide, and uh, one of the aliens comes through the, the ceiling real slick. And, like, I remember like punched out a hole in the dude's head that I remember was pretty graphic that I thought was cool. But, yeah. 
Alien 3 had, I think, when to go, I'd like to go back and look at it again because I actually remember it fondly, believe it or not. Um, but I remember like being a younger, at that age where, you know, that was the age of pay-per-view and stuff. And like, there'd be movies that, uh, I remember all, that was a movie that when I hit pay-per-view, I remember hearing about friends seeing it, you know what I mean? It was one of those good old days, but I like, I think it's, I like Alien 3, but it's a franchise. When you tap into those franchise films, especially when you're, you're not established, like he wasn't established yet, you kind of have to play by their rules. They're the bigger ones in charge. And they'll they'll fucking beat you up. They'll beat you up, bully you, push you around, do the whole deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's kind of a tricky deal. But I'm not surprised to hear he had kind of an issue making that film. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm up next, right? Yep. All right. Next up, Kevin Yeager. You know what I mean? Uh, he's a friend of the Shock Treatment with Mel and Maddie show on the network. You know what I mean? I guess he can be he's distant friends of the Boombastic cast. Um, with his film Hellraiser Bloodline, you know what I mean? Which is, uh, it's good to see a Hellraiser film being repped here. Maybe, okay. maybe not in the best light, you know what I mean? <laughs> but still being repped here. Bloodline is part four, and I will say that I actually highly enjoy part four. I think part after part four is where it drops off, and I know people fucking hate part four. It has a very special place in my heart. Um, there is a part within it where there's these evil, like, uh, like uh, colonial times, people because it jumps around eras, yeah. um, and I really liked how it jumped into the period piece horror and the way it did. There, there's characters in that period piece horror elements of it that I think the imagery of them still kind of stick in my head to this day, which I can appreciate. Um, but I do know that Bloodline is super fucking hated on. Um, I believe Bloodline is they go into space. It's like an in space, but it's all kind of in the mind thing. So space doesn't really matter that much, but like it does. Um, and yeah, again, I really like Bloodline. I think if I'm going to sit down and watch some Hell Ra- Hellraiser, like, like, like roll it out, like watch a friend, like watch a good chunk of them. I'll watch four. I like it. Have you seen four at all? No, no. Um, unfortunately, to be perfectly honest, I really haven't seen any of the Hellraiser movies. Well, we're gonna have to fill it. the first four. Like I said, are fun times, and then you can give your own opinion. Yeah. But uh, just so people know, the fourth film in the horror series, Hellraiser, had a troubled production. Original director Kevin Yeager was ordered by the studio to reshoot scenes, which he refused to do. Joe Chappelle stepped in, leading uh, to Yager demanding that an Alan Smithy synonym to be used. Uh, the final film, which acted as both a prequel and a sequel to the other three films, was not screened for critics and was dismissed by many fans. Like I said, me not being one of them, I enjoy it. Um, yeah, you know, whenever there's... We've worked on films ourselves where, you know, it, it wasn't the best of shoots, and that does kind of... You yeah, know, that does kind of tarnish a little bit of your opinion on that film, unfortunately. Yeah. But I mean, it just is what it is. It's much like everything. Um, the same way that if he's seen his little brother get hit by a red Corvette, he wouldn't be a fan of red Corvettes. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of the same vibe. Yeah, um, yeah but, I, mean, I mean, I mean, when it comes to, uh, I mean, do, doing something and you're working on it and then you got, you know, different people are putting in their two cents in and, and I mean it's it's tough I mean it's like what we uh, what Matt said earlier about you know when you're going into a franchise yeah. that you know 
it's it's less about you as a director and more it's about those in charge of the franchise wanting to make sure that they make mo they don't care about the story or, or what what it's doing what they care about is whether it's true enough to the brand to keep bringing people in to pay money for it right yeah so i mean unfortunately i think that's probably what happened and and when when you have like a bad bad feelings on set and all that and as Matt says, yeah, that really tarnishes your know, view of the project, even if it ends up being good. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky because you got those, you know, there's a lot of all the other movies that people love out there. You know, listen to some behind the scenes. Maybe not even listen because it could ruin the experience of that film for yeah. you because, you know, you love it and it's so much special meaning to you. And uh, whether or not knowing that those people went through absolute hell to make it or not, if that helps yeah. helps you appreciate it more or maybe takes away from it, uh, thinking of the suffering that I had to go through. But the suffering comes with everything. Remember, art means suffering. Believe it. Yes. Ah! All right. All right. Next up. Let's okay. fall on Accidental Love real quick. Yeah. Accidental Love oh. by David O. Russell. He used to, he used to, he accidentally fell in love with Massachusetts for a couple of years, and then I think he fell out of love with us. Because <laughs> he was here every year for fucking three or four years making a movie. Yeah. He just liked working with Frankie and Bagamo. Oh, yeah. shout out to our boy Frankie and Bagamo out there. We're loving you, Frank. Don't be, uh, don't be a stranger here. David Russell uh, began working on Nailed in 2008, envisioned the film as a romantic comedy mm-hmm. with political undertones. The director cast Jessica Biel and Jake Gyllenhaal in leading roles and was awarded $26 million to make it. And still, somehow, the entire filming process was a mess. The set was shut down and reported 14 times after wow. cast and crew... Pre-COVID, pre-COVID. Yeah. Uh, cast and crew complained about not being paid. Eventually, after key scenes were not filmed during uh, production, the entire thing was abandoned. After Russell started drawing Oscar attention for The Fighter and American Hustle through the studio, wanted to get nailed out in cinemas. We'll continue on the film without Russell's involvement. The film was then retitled Accidental Love and was released in cinemas with the director's name changed to Stephen Green, critics Hated the results. <laughs> well, I mean, I would not be surprised by this story yeah. that they hated the results. I, I mean, the thing is that uh, when you're working on a project and it's uh, obviously was a troubled situation, and I don't know all all the. I mean, it was obvious there was an issue with the money flow problem since it shut down 14 times because people weren't getting paid. $26 million to make a romantic comedy. What the fuck is that all about? That's yeah. the saddest thing I heard since fucking tragedy was invented. You know what yeah. I mean? That's hard, dude. You, need, you can't make a fucking romantic comedy for $26 million. That's when... When that can't happen, that's when you really got to look at the situation and be like, we're making a fucking movie of two people talking to each other. We need $26 million to make this happen. You should, to make it, to make a big budgeted movie of that, you should only need maybe a half a million realistically, maybe a million to fucking make two people talking. Come on, dude. There's greedy people behind the scenes taking gigantic fucking checks on that film. Yeah. Damn. Hey, hey, hey. Honestly, okay, uh, just give us, you know, um, a hundred thousand. 
Oh yeah, baby. A hundred thousand. Okay, give give about. Matthew Fisher and myself, Alex and Rob, a thousand dollars each. This guy. Fuck you. Anyway, give us that, and we can do a a knockout of the park romantic comedy. Okay, everyone gets paid. Yeah, everything gets done, and and you know it'll be great. But yeah, I mean it's. Obviously, there was a lot of crap going on. And then, of course, the funny thing is that, you know, he starts getting, you know, a big name and everyone's like, oh, we got this, you know, parsley shot. Let's, you know, capitalize on his newfound fame. Let's, you know, throw, uh, throw, uh, reshoot some stuff, you know, toss this together and. That's how it's go. Well, I mean, realistically, as a, as a, it's a business, it's show business. So you're going to go. Okay, we can either lose the money on making this film, or we can throw a little in and actually make some money off of this guy. Yeah, and it's people often do forget that it's business, and the, the the business side of it don't care about the artistic side. They want the audience to think that fucking everything's artistic yeah. and great. You know what I mean? But other than that, they don't care about the artistic. Yeah, side but but on on the business side, you have to at least be uh, somewhat. You know, I mean, when you're putting out something like that, at least uh, I'm. When you have a project that obviously had so many issues and then you try to, you know, uh, do a quick work on it, do some quick shots, some re-editing and trying to, you know, then just throwing it out there. It's like, okay, it's it's obvious it's not going to work. And the I would say the best case scenario, I mean, best case scenario that ends up being a cult favorite, but... I really doubt that even had a possibility with this because I didn't even hear about this coming out. And um, and the thing is that, you know, when, when you try to take something that's obviously a mess and try to, you know, slap a new coat of paint on it, give it a new name and just toss it out there, even if the director is now a huge thing now, I mean, that's not going to sell the movie, especially when you're dealing with a romantic comedy. It's romantic comedies, and I'm not saying that it's the case, uh, not the case with other genres, but with romantic comedies, I think those genres are specifically, you know, all depends on who you have as the leads, okay, in selling that product. Yeah. Because, I mean, you say Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, romantic comedy. God, you got my money. I'm there to see that. Yeah. You, uh, because you, you've you seen them in romantic comedies and they're great chemistry between them. Chemistry is the key when it comes to romantic comedies. And if you don't have it, no matter what coat of paint you put on it, it's not going to be any good. You got that right. Yeah. David O. Russell also had a period of time, I think around this era, where he... He caught himself in hot water for getting like an onset argument with some actress. Oh, an older, an older veteran actress that you weren't supposed to talk to that way. Yeah, re- re- not supposed re- to talk to anybody that way, but we got caught on camera. Yeah, but remember that you know you got to play nice. He went off. Dude. The video is out there. It's very, it's fun. You'll have a good time. <laughs> You'll have a good time with it. He fucking lost his mind. She must have. She, uh, there must have been, uh, there must have been some booga booga vibes on the scene that day because, yeah, there was some tension for sure. There's, uh, I don't think there's been more tension anywhere else in life than no. on that set. But yeah, the old Russell thing's interesting. It's a fun thing. You know what I mean? 
Uh, yeah, you know, when you take a film away from somebody, you chop it all up on them, you got to expect that they're going to be an issue. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, and you're going to expect they're going to want their name off it. You know what I mean? The most shocking one of this whole thing was fucking K, a boy, uh, Tony K there, what it was, who wanted his name off of American History X. Yeah. Actually a great film, you know. I also wanted to bring up our boy uh, Del Toro, Benicio. Yeah. No, no, not Benicio. Guillermo. Yeah. Yeah, Guillermo Del Toro. Mimic. His first American film, mm. Mimic. Mr. Harvey Weinstein fucked it all up, tore it up. Uh, no, he 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 was he he was very unhappy with that cut of the film. I know. Yeah. Even our pal Richard Stanley. You know I, can. I mean, you know, uh, what was it? Dust Devil. They cut, yeah. They took it. They cut up his Dust Devil into uh, Oblivion, and he was very unhappy with that. And yeah. you know, yeah. it happens a lot. You know, it's one of those things. Whenever you get, whenever there's somebody putting in too much money, there's always a burden that comes with that money. Have you know? Yeah. You know that that money. There's a reason why when you there's a reason why you go looking for that money. It's because you don't have that money. Yeah. The people that have that money know that they have that money, so they know that you need that money. So that when you guys get together, they know where they stand, and you know where you stand. And uh, unfortunately, it's an even trade off of their money and your your creative talents of putting together this story. You know. Now they feel like they're very creative people as well. Some of them may be. Sometimes they're not creative, but even those not creative still think they are creative. So they'll give you an, an idea that's golden, fucking the best idea ever created. And if you don't want, want to use that idea, then you have you have a problem. Now you have a problem on your hands. Not now someone's not liking you as much as they liked you the day before. Yeah. And that will grow, and then next time you want something that you know maybe they could have said, you know what, maybe we'll sway and let them have that extra. We'll give him that extra hour to get that shot he really wanted. Now you're not getting that, and then there's more tension, and the tension builds, and then it's then dealing on the egos you're dealing with. You might have somebody that loves the tension, loves it, and just wants to fucking like stew in it and create a worse environment, and it could get it could get very hostile. And then there, like I said, egos, man. So like people stop caring about the film, and it's just about their personality is more important and their ego and their reputation is more important than what's going on. And it gets ugly. It gets ugly quick, you know, but multiple things can happen on a set. But yeah, I think if you don't, I don't think you, if, if, if you, I feel like if you have a film that you made or whatever, and you don't, you have bad feelings towards it. I think you should kind of almost keep them to yourself for a little bit especially until after the release. Yeah. I would, I, going, uh, I, if, I, if I was to say I didn't like one of my films, it would be years after it. Um, you know, you, owe, you have responsibility to the cast and crew, and even the audience, because you might, you, there might be an audience person out there that fucking loves that movie. Oh, yeah. And you saying that movie's bad news is, is like kind of saying they have bad taste, and you don't want to fucking do that either. You yeah. know what I mean? And art's art. Somebody might hate it. Somebody might love it. The person who might hate it might be the person who created it. And the person who loved it might be the guy who needs it. Yeah. Think about that. Or the girl who needs it. So, it's one of those things. Okay. But uh, I think that's kind of it, you know. For all y'all directors out there, be kind, rewind. You know what I mean? 
show uh, these the, the, these films. Realistically, it's funny because the only people I ever hear really crying about their films are the people that have the big money to make them. <laughs> yes. People with people with like no money, fucking, <laughs> they're never crying about what if. They like it, so it's weird that they never cry about what if I had this. They do, but not as much. It seems like the people with the money cry more about, well, if I had this or that, it's like, how much more do you need, motherfucker? Yeah. Than the other person. Well, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, when, when people that have the money complain about, you know, the, the end result, uh, usually it's because that, um, the truth is either the story or the concept or whatever, uh, pretty much what the director put together yeah. wasn't good, all right? And they want to pass the buck on someone else, saying, oh, it's because of the audience. It's because of, you know, uh, the the producers interfering too much, which right. uh, is definitely an issue, which, but, I mean, as Matt said, you know, even if that's the case, you know, let people, if 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 it uh, people bond and, and love the, the story... Let them enjoy it. I mean, don't go out and say, yeah, you know, it just kind of sucked. And they're like, but I like it. Well, it still kind of sucked. It's like, okay. That's the objectiveness of art. Yeah. You know, that's the beauty of it is that you can, it, it, it touches people. That's like kind of the magic of it is it touches people in different ways. You know what I mean? It can yeah. make him feel a certain way and make me feel differently and, you really, there's the very few things that can do that. You know what I mean. So, with that being said, we'll have to catch all y'all on the next episode. Oh, the boom, boom bastard cast. cast.